And just a little context as we get started here, when Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews stopped eating with the Gentiles in Antioch, we remember last week we learned how Paul rebuked Peter. He was saying that Peter's actions amounted to compelling the Gentiles to keep the Jewish laws as a way of their full acceptance with God in the church. And so this was out of sync with the gospel. It was out of step and it was inconsistent with their shared understanding of the gospel. And so in looking at the passage for today, we might ask a question, well, is Paul still talking to Peter and Barnabas and the rest? Or, you know, and he's continuing his argument, or is this a new section? And uh, you'd notice that today's passage begins with, we ourselves are Jews by birth, right? And we'll see that the next major section, you look at Galatians 3, verse 1, and Paul writes, oh, foolish Galatians. We see a real shift there. J.B. Phillips' uh, translation or paraphrase of that is, oh, my dear idiots. <laughs> so, <laughs> so next, when you come back in January, chapter 3 is when we're going to make that switch where Paul is writing directly to his dear idiots there. Uh, but remember, Paul has been rehearsing his own history as an argument for his authenticity as an apostle and for the truth of the gospel. So it's hard to tell where Paul's history stops and where his theological argument begins, but we know that those two things go hand in hand in Paul's mind, and these are things that he wanted the Galatians to hear, even though he wasn't addressing them directly. So in the original language, which I don't know, but I've heard that quotation marks were not used. A, a lot of punctuation marks are missing in the original language, so we can't be sure who you know, was the, the directly intended audience, but we do know that Paul did intend the Galatians to hear these words. And we know that a lot is at stake here, and it's not just about whether they could enjoy bacon together or not. Um, Tom Schreiner says that now we arrive at what is the most significant text in Galatians in which Paul summarizes the gospel. And another commentator, Timothy George, said this about this passage. Nearly every word in these few verses is a landmine on the battlefield of biblical scholarship. So let's read Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Martin Luther called justification by faith the most important doctrine of Christianity. But he realized that it was also being threatened and undermined from all angles, and some were supposing that it was easy. 
And so he wrote this. He said, it is indeed easy to talk about, but it's hard to grasp, and it's easily obscured and lost. So therefore, let us with all diligence and humility devote ourselves to the study of sacred scripture, which is what we're doing, right? And to serious prayer, lest we lose the truth of the gospel. The other precious doctrine that we see in this passage is our union with Christ. We see this in the repeated phrase, in Christ. <coughs> Phil Riken put it this way, the reason union with Christ is such a magnificent doctrine is that once we get into Christ by faith, then everything Christ has ever done becomes something we have done. It's as if we lived his perfect life and died his painful death. It's as if we were buried in his tomb and then raised to glorious heaven. God attaches to us the events of Christ's life so that they become a part of our lives. His story, the story of the cross and the empty tomb, becomes our story. So my main point this morning is that it is only in Christ that we are justified, and it's by faith in Jesus that we are made right with God. And also, in Christ, we are dead to the law, and we are alive by grace because Jesus lives in us. So my outline this morning, you have that on your handout. We're going to talk about being in Christ and justified. And then my second point is in Christ, dead to the law, and alive by grace. So let's dig in. And I have a lot to cover, so pardon me if I speak quickly. And I'll clarify things in an email afterwards if I go too quickly. So Paul, number one, starts out by saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, meaning we are all sinners and we are all justified the same way. And that is how? By faith in Christ, right. So now Paul knew that all people are sinners, right? Including Jews and not just Gentiles because we know that Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, you could probably all say it with me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means all right, including Jews, and he was probably using this phrase Gentile sinners in a somewhat limited or sarcastic way here because he knew that these Judaizers in the church were apparently, you know, proud of being Jews by birth and conceited about their law keeping, okay, and they probably used the term Gentile sinners to describe all of these non-Jews. They didn't have the law, so of course they were sinners, right? You can hear the snobbery a little bit here. You know, it's a, a slight. There's, there's this moral superiority of, of the Jews versus the Gentiles, you know, the ethnic uh, division that's going on here. Even though God had promised Abraham that how many nations would be blessed through his offspring? All, All right. So Peter and Paul are born as Jews, and they were brought up as law-keeping, kosher Jews, not as law-neglecting Gentiles. And, but now both he and Peter had come to know that no one can be right with God on the basis of efforts to keep the law. They both knew the glorious truth of the gospel. They were in agreement on theology, that we're accepted by God, not by keeping the law ourselves, but by trusting in Jesus, the only person who ever kept the law perfectly. And this is huge. It's not just about eating, okay? So it's not just about bacon, right? It's, it's not just about Paul versus Peter or Paul versus the men from James. And it's not a social problem only or even a racial, ethnic problem. 
It's not about cliques in the church, but this is a battle for the gospel of grace that we see it here in this section. How are we made right with God? Is it by God's gift of free grace? Or is it by our own human efforts to save ourselves? So a paraphrase of what Paul is saying here in verses 15 and 16 might be something like this. Look, Peter, as Jews, we've always looked down on Gentile sinners. We took pride in being religious and thought we were right in God's eyes because we kept the law. Remember how Paul boasted about how he kept the law? But now we've come to see that we are sinners who need to be justified by faith in Jesus, just like everyone else. Rather than trying to do what the law demands, we've realized that no one can be right with God by any other way. And if you think you can be right with God by keeping the law or by keeping any part of it, then you've fallen for a form of legalism that could destroy you. You can't be justified by doing what the law commands. So Paul's logic here is how can you say that you're saved by the law or saved by faith and then expect the Gentiles to follow the law as a way to that salvation? Why would you force law keeping on them when you claim to be justified by faith in Christ? You can't have it both ways. Gentiles don't need to become like Jews, but Jews have to become to go to the level of Gentile sinners and realize that they are condemned as well. They are condemned sinners without Jesus. No Jews are ever saved by keeping the law. No Gentiles are ever saved by keeping the law. No one is ever saved by keeping the law. And we see this progression here in these verses. In verse 16, Paul uses the, the term works of the law three times. You probably saw this as you studied. He also uses the word faith or belief, it's, it's the same form of the word. He uses that three times, and I've indicated that in green. He uses the term in Jesus Christ, or in Christ, four times in this, you know, this verse and a half. And he also uses the term justified four times. So in just one verse, in verse 16, Paul mentions justification three times in three different ways, okay? And it's kind of a sandwich. And I put that on your handout for you. First, Paul states the doctrine negatively in general terms. Okay? He says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is general. So how does a person get right with God? Well, by trusting in Jesus Christ. And then he makes it positively personal. He says, we have believed in Jesus in order to be justified. And then he makes an emphatic, negative, universal, where he says, no one can be justified. No one will be justified by works of the law. So we're going to take a look at the word justified. You looked at this in your lesson. And um, in fact, I'm just going to briefly say that you know, just our justification, I can send this out in an email. I won't read the whole definition. But it's a legal term. And it means that the law is not relaxed or set aside. But God the judge declares us to be righteous on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. He, Jesus is our righteousness, and that's what justification is about. So it's by faith that we take a hold of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. We're accepted not by keeping that law ourselves, but by trusting in him. He kept the law that we couldn't keep, and he kept it perfectly. He was faithful to God. He was crucified, and then he was raised back to life to redeem us from the curse of the law. And that's language that we're going to see when we get into 
uh, chapter 3. So it is only in Christ that we are justified. It's by faith that Jesus makes us right with God. And in Christ, we are dead to the law and we are alive by grace because Jesus lives in us. So we come to verse 17, which you might have had some robust discussion in your groups, or you might have sat there looking at each other like, I don't get this, what does Paul mean? Well, you might remember that Jackie told us that what we're experiencing here in reading an epistle is really like one side of a phone conversation. So we can't be certain what the objection was, but Paul here is leaning into some objections, okay, to, to what he was saying. He's using a provocative question here to Peter to kind of knock him into, you know, to his senses. Peter had communicated by his actions that were hypocritical that faith in Christ maybe needed to be supplemented with a sort of a, like a spiritual safety net underneath them. Like, yeah, trust in Jesus, but keep the law underneath you to hold you just in case you, you know, you fall. And that spiritual safety net was, was observing the law. Things like, well, maybe I really shouldn't eat bacon, you know, with my bacon-loving friends, you know. So he had fallen back into that trap. And so Paul is saying, Peter, our experience as Jews of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ is that we're freed from the Jewish law, and we have the freedom to eat with our Gentile brothers and sisters, even bacon. And yes, when we live like that, the Judaizers will call us sinners. Okay, so he's maybe using this word sinners in quotation marks. Similar to the way he used it in verse 15 when he says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay, so it could be used in that way. But Paul strongly denies that this makes Jesus a servant of sin. The ESV says certainly not, and the NIV says absolutely not, and the King James says God forbid. Well, why? Because if Jesus has freed us from the law and justified us by faith in him, then we don't depend on our law keeping for salvation. And it's not a sin to eat certain foods. Jesus himself told us in Mark 7 that all foods are clean. Jesus is not a servant of sin or an agent of sin. So another sense of what Paul might be saying here in verse 17 is, Peter, when we come to Jesus, we come as true sinners like the Gentiles. We are found to be sinners. We need Jesus to, to justify us. Does that make Jesus a minister of sin or a servant of sin? No, but we reject law keeping. We come to Jesus as sinners saying, Jesus, we need you, and we trust in what he's done for us. So the good news of the gospel is that we're not saved by law-keeping. The law doesn't make us sinners, but the law shows us that we are already sinners. Remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law shows us that we need a savior. So how do law and grace relate? Well, he goes on in verse 18. Did you notice how Paul says in verse 18 how he switches from the we language to the I language, the first person here? He says, he says really, he says, well, on the contrary, Peter, I would prove myself to be a, a horrible, awful sinner if I were to rebuild the law as justification for myself after having already broken down and demolished that old system of placing my faith in law-keeping for salvation. And if I do that, Jesus isn't responsible for that, right? It, was, it wasn't Jesus that re-erected the law. So if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation by grace and then returned to law-keeping, you're saying that you've made a mistake. 
by placing your trust in Jesus. And Paul goes on then to talk about nullifying the grace of God in verse 21. So I thought perhaps a picture from John Piper might help. And I'll send you a link to this. But he said this, he said, God gave the law originally as a railroad track to guide Israel's obedience. The engine that was supposed to pull a person along the track was God's grace, the power of the Spirit. And the coupling between our car and the engine was faith. So that in the Old Testament, like the New Testament, salvation was by grace through faith along the track of obedience or sanctification. But this way of salvation is so uncomplimentary to the human ego, since God is having to do everything for us, that it's never been very popular. The Pharisees and many other Jews with them, as well as many people today, did an amazing thing. They took the railroad track, rails, ties, nails and all, and lifted it up on end, leaned it against the door of heaven, and turned it into a ladder to climb. This is the essence of legalism, making the law into a long list of steps by which we use to demonstrate our moral fitness to attain heaven. And then John Piper went on, he said, while the track is on the ground, some of the ceremonial ties could be pulled out from under the rails without ruining the track. But as a ladder, every rung is crucial or you might not be able to climb to the next. This ladder is what Paul tore down. He tore down the legalistic misuse of the law. And he says, if I build up again those things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. You transgress the law of God when you try to erect the ladder to heaven, the law as a ladder to heaven, on which you will demonstrate your moral fitness for salvation. So the connection between verse 17 and 18 is this. When Christ leads us to trust him for salvation, instead of trusting our own legal climbing efforts, he's not an agent of sin, but what, what really makes a person a true transgressor of the law is not the neglect of its ceremonial statutes, but the horrible prostitution of the law of God, which turns it from a railroad track of grace into a ladder of works. The transgression against God is to presume that you can climb your way up a ladder of morality into his favor. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God, Paul says in verse 19. Death versus life, another one of Paul's comparisons, his contrasts, his paradoxes. So perhaps there was another objection that was being raised here, that grace must mean that it doesn't matter if you go on sinning. Remember, Paul dealt with a similar argument in Romans, Romans chapter 6, where he said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So in Romans 6, he's talking about dying to sin. And here in Galatians, Paul is talking about dying to the law similar kind of things here. So imagine, here, here's an illustration, and I know it's going to break down, it's not going to work perfectly, but imagine I had a mysterious illness um, that had some really weird symptoms, and I went to the doctor, and there is this brand new device, and this new device is able to diagnose my illness. So I, I go into this tube, and, and it diagnoses my illness, but then it killed me because it revealed that I was sick. Well, through the device, I was both diagnosed and killed, right? That's kind of what the law does for us. It tells, it reveals that we're a sinner, but it also is our death because the wages of sin are death, right? That's what it leads to if we rely on law keeping. 
I know that illustration isn't perfect, but in my mind it helped because it's what it does. It reveals and it also kills us if we rely on it. So Paul says here that we've died to the law, we're dead to the law, but it doesn't end there. He says we are alive in him. And Romans 6 is beautiful. I was going to read a passage, but in the interest of time, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to encourage you to go read Romans 6 because I think it applies so well. And also Romans 7, 4, Paul said, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Okay, that's why we have died to the law. We've been raised with Christ to bear fruit. So we've come to verse 20, one of the most famous verses in Galatians, and we're going to read that in a minute. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about a man named John Perkins. John Perkins was born into a sharecropping family in Mississippi in 1930, and he lived in dire poverty. He's 89 years old this year. And when he was 17, his older brothers, after his older brother's murder at the hands of town marshal, he went to California, very, and he vowed never to return to Mississippi. But God, in his mercy, had John's children attending a Sunday school where they learned that precious little song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And he, he began to hear his children sing this, and then this church invited the parents of all the kids who came to Sunday school to come so they could share the gospel. And it was in the context of Bible study at this church in California that John came to know Jesus. And he said this, he said this about Paul. He said, this Paul really intrigued me. What made him tick? What motivated this man to suffer so much for a religion? If he'd been going after money, I could have understood him. How could religion mean so much to anybody, even Paul? The answer came as I grappled with Paul's message of law and grace in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so John continued. He said, at age 27, for the first time in my life, I came to see that the Christian life was more than what I had been seeing in the churches. It was the outliving of the in-living Christ. And I knew that Christ wasn't living in me. I felt a deep inner hunger to know him in this way. And then through a sermon on Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, he understood that he was a sinner committing every act of sin against a holy God who loved him and sent his son to die for him and gave himself for him. And that's, that's his beautiful story of salvation. I heard him first share this when we went with the church staff, the pastoral staff, down to the MLK 50 event. And uh, he was interviewed by Russell Moore, and he shared uh, part of his beautiful story. But do you see the, the connection between John 3.16 here? Did anyone think of John 3.16 when you studied this? John 3.16 says, you could say it with me, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, believes in him. What is precious about that is, yes, God loved the world, right? And he gave his son for the world, for whoever believed in him. But in Galatians 2.20, we have this precious personal truth that he loved me and gave himself for me. 
I just think that is really, really sweet. Um, you also read Ephesians 2 um, in your lesson this week that in Christ, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So do you see the extravagance of grace and love in what Jesus' death on the cross has won for us? The cross destroys our pride in our own righteousness and our own boasting, whether in our ethnicity or our works, whatever it is. The, the cross destroys that. In Christ, there should be no more hostility, no more tension, no more distrust or disrespect. Tabidi Nwabwili wrote, it's when we tightly cling to Jesus that we find ourselves embracing other people clinging to the Savior. The cross reconciles men to God and men to each other. When we're crucified with Christ, it's no longer the old I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And John Perkins describes our union in Christ this way, the outliving of the in-living Christ. And it's because of the extravagant grace of Jesus and our union with Christ. It's that doctrine, that's what propelled John to dedicate his life to go back to Mississippi and to pursue racial reconciliation and spread the great news of the gospel. And it wasn't easy for him. He experienced times where he was beaten and jailed, but he pursued. He wanted to give the great good news of the gospel to his people back in Mississippi. Finally, we come to verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness or our right standing or our justification. It's actually the same word here. I'm wondering why, you know, it's kind of the noun form of the word, so it doesn't stand out clearly in English, but wherever you see justified and righteousness, they're actually forms of the same word, Greek word. If, he said, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If works of the law, like circumcision and eating kosher, could justify, then what would be the point of Jesus dying? Why would Jesus have to come as a man, suffer, be crucified, and rise again? If the law rituals worked, why did Jesus need to be crucified? So Paul says it would nullify the grace of God to go back and trusting the law. This would be like receiving a pardon, set free from prison, and then choosing to go back to prison and serve a life sentence. You would be in effect nullifying the pardon that you received. So back in verse 17, Paul was defending against those who were saying that Christ was a servant of sin because Paul had torn down the law, which was being used as a ladder, and now he's telling them that they are making the cross even senseless for no purpose by saying that righteousness could be from the law. And Paul expands this in Galatians 5, verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. And Hebrews 10.29 puts it like this, trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, outraged the spirit of grace. 
You can hear the offense that it is when we try to be right with God by any other way than trusting in Jesus and the cross. So Paul ends this chapter with an exclamation point about God's grace, kind of like a bookend with his greeting. You remember back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, when Paul said Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So don't lose sight of the cross. It's because of God's lavish love that he sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. And you might be wondering, how can God be just in declaring sinners righteous? God would be unjust to grant forgiveness to anyone apart from his divine justice being satisfied. But God is righteous, God is just, and our forgiveness is not granted to us simply on the basis of his love. But because God is just and merciful and gracious and loving, he provided the means to satisfy his own wrath by his own righteousness and his own justice. At the same time, declaring us righteous, even though we're undeserving sinners, we could be guilty for all eternity, but Romans 3 tells us that God is just and the justifier. The way our gracious God accomplishes this is by transferring our guilt to Jesus at the cross. Our sin was imputed to Jesus. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In accounting terms, we would say that all my sin is placed on Christ's ledger and the things, of, the things that Christ has done has been placed, did I say that right? All my sin is placed on Christ's ledger and everything that he has done perfectly is placed on my ledger, right? So Jesus takes the weight of our sin and our guilt and our wrath and he pays the debt that we owe and we get his righteousness, though in real life we're not righteous. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange, that everything that God requires for you to have a right standing with him, he's provided through Jesus Christ. We're justified again, not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask as we close, are you trusting fully in Jesus Christ and his righteousness? Unless you're fully trusting Jesus alone, you're rejecting Jesus and his work on the cross, rejecting the grace of God. So treasure the cross, treasure God's extravagant grace, treasure the Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you, treasure your justification by faith in Christ, treasure your union with Christ in death and in life. It is only in Christ that we are justified, it's by faith that Jesus makes us right with God, and in Christ we are dead to the law and we are alive by grace because Jesus lives in us. So let me pray. Lord, I'm reminded of the words of the other hymn, the great hymn, that, that when we stand before your throne, we have a strong and a perfect plea only because of Jesus, only because of our great high, high priest who has gone before us, who lives for us, who pleads for us on our behalf, who is our mediator, our matchless mediator, as Pastor Stephen preached a couple of weeks ago. You are our advocate. You are our high priest. You are our sinless savior. And Lord, I thank you that because you, our sinless Savior, died, 
that our sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that our life is hid with you in Christ. Oh, God, thank you for that beautiful doctrine that we are in you and we are justified. And it's in Jesus' priceless, matchless, precious name we pray. Amen.